Do you have anything you would like to share? Do I ever have anything going <laughs> on in my life? <laughs> you tell me. I don't think so. Okay. I decided to be a bougie bitch and I got some sumac at the farmer's market. What? Sumac. It's like a weird little herb thing. Um, I guess it's used as like a spice in a lot of like Middle Eastern cuisine. Um, but apparently you can make a drink out of it. Um, <clears throat> you just like soak the berries in water like overnight. Um, so I did that two days ago. So I it was done yesterday and I tried it last night. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All that effort. It was a lot of effort. I spent an hour, I think, plucking these like tiny little berries off of a stick and it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, lesson learned. <laughs> that's why I don't cook. Uh, <laughs> often, you know, the uh, reward is not worth it. That's very true. It is so devastating to spend time on something and it's just like mediocre. It's like I could have had somebody door dash this to me and it would have been so much better quality than whatever I just attempted to do in my kitchen. And then you spend as much money on the ingredients as you would have spent ordering it. Exactly. <laughs> and it sucks when you get stuff to make like a big batch and then it turns out like shit. And now you're like, I have six <laughs> days worth of shit now. <laughs> and you have to eat it. Yes. Because you were told by your parents that wasting food is a sin. Yes. <laughs> uh, super healthy, super great <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to be told that. <laughs> it absolutely did not contribute to my eating disorder at all. No negative impact on my relationship with food. Nope. Um, totally not the reason why I literally do not have like a full sensor and I just eat until I'm physically sick. I eat until I'm sick because I cannot throw food away. If I yeah. accidentally put too much food on my plate, strap in like it's not a choice now. We'll be here all night. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, this is our eating disorder podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is Saints and Witches. That's Liz over there. She's a not witch. Sarah. She's a Catholic. And today we're going to be talking about some saints and witches, baby. Mm -hmm. um, I decided on England again because I just cannot stay away. There's just so much stuff that happens in England. I feel like we're always going to end up circling back there because they just, they, they murdered a lot of people. And they've got it all. Like they've got the Viking raids. They've got Henry VIII. Like, there's always something going they on. Are kind of in, like, the middle of all the bullshit. Mm -hmm. Or they start all the bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> they have two speeds. That's it. And they are fast and overdrive. <laughs> Those are the speeds. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into some of England's bullshit today. Let's do it. Also, the highest percentage of our non-U.S. listeners are in England, so. Let's explore your bullshit, guys. Let's get back on England's bullshit today. 
Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about one of the most significant saints in English history. He's up there with Thomas More and St. Dunstan. We are talking about a guy who is venerated in both the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion, and we're going to see how the Norman Conquest planted the seeds for the English Church's eventual split from Rome, and how jealousy and political tension caused one of the most notorious betrayals of all time. And of course, that means that we're talking about St. Thomas Becket, or St. Thomas A. Becket, or St. Thomas of Canterbury, or St. Thomas of London. Lots of names. My main source is a book called The Life and Letters of Thomas A. Becket, now first gathered from the contemporary historians by the Reverend J.A. Giles, or Giles, I don't know, D.C.L., which means Doctor of Canon Law. It was written in 1845, and in the preface, the author basically says, like, this is not a hagiography, it's a biography, and its purpose is to ground some of the fantastical stories and like folklore about Thomas Beckett in reality. And he says like, look, even if you take away like all these miracles that he supposedly performed, his life on its own is still fascinating. And he's worthy of study, even without like study through the lens of sainthood. Um, This is by no means the first biography of Thomas Beckett. There were many written shortly after his death, and many of those are now lost, and some of them are written by unknown authors. Um, But this one claims to be a synthesis of all of them, or at least parts of all of them. So I'm doing a synthesis of a synthesis. (laughs) The book gives us a historical introduction, so I will just copy that (laughs) Um, and start at the beginning which is right after the Norman conquest that thing that I pretend to know what it means (laughs) yeah yeah it's like oh yeah that thing could you define it no (laughs) I cannot tell you a single thing that happens use it in a sentence (laughs) in 1066 (laughs) there was the Norman conquest Um, Battle of Hastings, word association. Blah, blah, blah. Correct. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) That's all I got. Mm -hmm. That's all there is, really. What else is there to know? Um, I'm not sure. (laughs) In 1070, William the Conqueror installed Lanfranc as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the two of these guys were best buddies. And Lanfranc reorganized and reformed the Catholic Church in England in order to give William the Conqueror as much freedom and independence from the Pope as possible. So when we see like 500 years later, Henry VIII um, creating the Church of England, the seeds were planted a long time ago. Um, The Church in England has always wanted to do its own thing, but um, here's the situation. In England at the time, by law, the Archbishop of Canterbury Canterbury is directly below the king in terms of both spiritual and secular power. So there's constant tension baked into that relationship, like a beautiful crust. Mm -hmm. Um, Like whenever the king is away from England, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury is in charge. So then like... 
why would the archbishop want the king to return? Like, it's not a great idea. (laughs) Um, If they're so close in terms of authority, there's always going to be some kind of tension between them. So we're just going to bookmark that idea. (laughs) So we see it with William and Lanfranc. We see it with Henry I and Archbishop Anselm. And we definitely see it in our story today. So let's talk about Thomas Beckett. The Reverend's biography, um, like I said, is a synthesis. So he gives a lot of excerpts of the previous biographies and then he'll like compare and contrast them and he'll analyze them. It's actually like, I thought it was really good. I mean, it's obviously still biased because he's a member of the Catholic church. Like he's a doctor of canon law, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was good. So this is an excerpt from William Fitzstephen's hagiography. And Fitzstephen was Beckett's personal clerk, like his household clerk. Um, So he says, quote, the Lord knew and predestined the blessed Thomas before his birth and declared in a vision to his mother what manner of man her son would be. For she saw a vision wherein she fancied that she bore within her the whole church of Canterbury. Ouch. (laughs) Pointy. (laughs) I want to say that on an ultrasound. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Is it a boy? Is it a girl? It's a church. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So immediately after the birth. Oh, yeah, this is still a quote. Oops, that's not what he said. Quote, and immediately after the birth of the child, the midwife lifting him up in her arms exclaimed, I have raised from the ground a future archbishop. Unquote. Um, right after that, Fitzstephen says, oh, and yeah, a miracle happened with his baby blanket. The midwife and his mom tried to unfold it, and it was so big that it wouldn't stop unfolding. And they were like, this blanket could cover all of England. <laughs> and that was the miracle. He had a very large baby blanket. <laughs> so it's like classic hagiography stuff like this baby is the coolest baby again the bingo card all that pressure (laughs) to put on the mom yeah pressure on the mom pressure on the infant everybody pressure on the midwife Mm -hmm. um so thomas was born in 1119 or 1120 we're not sure in london his parents were gilbert and matilda classic power couple. Um, (laughs) Gilbert was the sheriff of London. And he was also like, he had been a merchant previous to that. Like he, he became sheriff later in his life, I think. Um, But his, his real job, like day-to-day job was a merchant. And they were like solid middle-class. They lived in Cheapside there's a whole like meet cute mythology in the biography about Gilbert and Matilda that I liked where like um, they're in France. That's where both of them are from. And Gilbert is captured by this band of pagans and he falls in love with the warlord's daughter, who's Matilda. And they have these like secret talks and it's super romantic. And he tells her all about London and how if he escapes, that's where he's going to go. And she says, like, wow, you know what? I am interested in becoming a Christian. (laughs) 
Christians, you don't even give up whenever you're like tied to something in somebody's captivity, still <laughs> trying to convert people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you have a moment for my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? <laughs> and she's like, you know what? I do have a moment. I have the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, so Gilbert does escape and he goes to London and Matilda follows him and they get married. Probably not 100% true. (laughs) Um, I believe that they were both of Norman descent, so they very well could have met in France. I don't know if I buy the whole, like, prisoner and princess situation, but I love the vibe. I'm here for the vibe. Um, And I loved this part in the biography about Matilda that compared her to the Virgin Mary, and it said, like, They were both young mothers who both technically had converted to Christianity. And like, again, a neon sign that's like, this saint equals Jesus. When Matilda is pregnant with Thomas, Gilbert decides to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. (laughs) Um, He's like, bye. Um, You got this. You're good. Yep. And he's gone for three and a half years. (laughs) I would beat his ass when he came <laughs> home. I he would not come home. He would not cross the threshold. No. <laughs> um so she's a single mom for 3 years and because of that Thomas becomes really close to his mom and is never super close to his dad. He just doesn't have that connection with his father. Um so those are Thomas's parents. And now we get a description of Thomas himself as a child and like adolescent. Quote, he was modest and agreeable in speech, in person tall and elegant, easily led by good example, prudent beyond his years, combining the personal beauty of youth with the gravity of a more advanced age. So great was the force of his intellect that he could answer questions of the greatest difficulty on subjects with which he had been previously unacquainted. In this quality, he surpassed many who were more learned than himself. Um, As like a child and a teenager, he visited the estate of one of his father's friends like twice a year. I think that this guy was a knight and I think his name was Richard. He was Norman. So whatever the French version of Richard is, but the English sources call him Richard. Um, And Thomas liked to go there because he could do fun stuff like hunting and falconry. He could like get a little bougie out in the country like he loved to do. And one time when he's there, he and Richard go out on a hunting expedition on horseback and they come to this like narrow rickety wooden bridge over a river and Richard goes right ahead and crosses it. No problem. But when Thomas follows him, he and his horse fall into the river and there's a mill downstream so that the big mill wheel is turning and is about to crush him when miraculously it stops turning. So that's another one of the miracles associated with him. When Thomas is 10, he is sent to Merton Priory to study, which was an Augustinian priory in Surrey, which I think I read is southwest of London, um, which is where Harry Potter lives also. (laughs) Fun fact. Yeah. Number four, Privet Drive, Little Whinging, sorry. Thomas later attended grammar school in London, and at both of these schools, he studied the seven liberal arts, which apparently are divided into two groups. There's the trivium and the quadrivium. 
So the trivium are like the foundational arts, which are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And they form the basis for the four higher arts, which are arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. After this, Thomas spent about a year in Paris when he was like 20 years old. Apparently, the one subject that he wasn't great at was Latin. His Latin never developed beyond sort of like a beginner's level. Like it got the job done, but it wasn't impressing anybody. Um, And he was insecure about that later in his life. Um, His mother, Matilda, died when he was 21. And like I said, he had had a really close relationship with her. So at this point, he really distanced himself from his home. He didn't visit his father often, um, didn't spend much time at home. And his father was also struggling with finances. So Thomas had to get a job as a clerk. He became the household clerk of one of their rich relatives, who was a guy named Osborne, I think, which is a fantastic name. Um, Through this guy and a couple other like family friends in high places, one of whom was an archdeacon, Thomas was introduced to, I forgot to look it up. It looks like Theobald, but maybe it's not. But I'm going to say (laughs) Theobald. Theobald. Theobald, yeah. Um, And he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he eventually joins the court of Archbishop Theobald. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, this guy is the second in state. The Archbishop Brick, Archbishop Brick of Canterbury. was His name was Rick. (laughs) The Archbishop Rick. <laughs> Theobald and his and his predecessor Rick. <laughs> no. The Archbishopric of Canterbury was one of the few offices that had actually gained more power and privilege from the Norman conquest instead of being subsumed or like gotten rid of the way other offices had been. Okay, so Thomas joins that court, he moves into the palace. Everything's amazing. This is during a golden age of learning in England. Oxford University was just founded. The archbishop publicly declares that Thomas is amazing. He is like such a nice guy. He gets the job done. His faith in God is like admirable. Like he's like, why can't you all be more like Thomas, please? So we've seen this before. When the archbishop really likes somebody and says publicly that they're the best, um, it tends to inspire a bit of jealousy. Mm -hmm. So Thomas makes an enemy of this guy named Roger Dupont, who is super jealous of him and of how much the archbishop likes him. Roger would later become the archdeacon of Canterbury and then the archbishop of York. So he's not going away. He will come up again in the story. And Thomas is getting praised for stuff like his manners, his disposition, and his work ethic. But he no longer is like the smartest person in the room the way he used to be when he was like a teenager in school. He didn't grow up wealthy, so he didn't have access to the same kind of education that the other clerks had. So he feels inferior because of that, but it pushes him to study like the hardest out of anybody else. And the biographers say that because he now had access to all these educational resources and because he has this like innate drive to learn, this makes him the most knowledgeable clerk there eventually. And he already has, he's already the 
most well-mannered, so he's the best. He becomes well-practiced in both canon and civil law, and this made him super important because in that time in England, and probably everywhere, the ecclesiastical courts exerted much more influence on secular matters than they do now. Um, separation of church and state? Never heard of her. Uh, Thomas's feud with Roger DuPont continues. They both get each other thrown out of the court a couple times, and they both come back. <laughs> Boys. <laughs> the archbishop sends Thomas on a few important missions, one to Rome to negotiate with the Pope. He does a great job, makes friends with the Pope. Um, comes back bearing gifts like there's nothing he can do no wrong basically everybody loves him and I know I say that about a lot of people I'm like oh he must have been so charming but like everybody writes about how nice he is so the archbishop also sends Thomas to Bologna and to A-U-X-E-R-R-E. I'm assuming that's in France. Um, Yeah. (laughs) He sends him there to continue his legal studies, and he appoints him to places of honor in parishes all over England. The terms for these things that he's appointed to or given as gifts are called prebends. Um, Basically, he got a bunch of little stipends, and he got a special seat reserved for him at a bunch of churches in the country. We still have prebenderies today, but usually nowadays they're more like honorific and there's no monetary attachment. Um, in 1154, the archbishop named him Archdeacon of Canterbury. He took Roger DuPont's empty position after he became Archbishop of York. And because he does so well in the post, just a year later in 1155, the archbishop recommends him to King Henry II for the vacant position of Lord Chancellor. Um, Lord Chancellor is a big freaking deal. He would be a personal advisor to the king in both spiritual and temporal matters. He would also be the enforcer of all the king's sources of revenue. So like all the taxes and stuff. So let's talk about King Henry II for a moment. He is the first Plantagenet king. He is the great-grandson of William the Conqueror on his mother's side. His mother, Matilda, had been trying to reclaim her father, Henry I's throne, which had been usurped. Henry II led a military campaign against the usurper, who was named Stephen. and Stephen. Who is named, well, he has a title, but I can't pronounce it. <laughs> I can't pronounce the name that he's from. I just like <laughs> thinking of him as Steve. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, Steve died in 1154. So Henry claimed the throne after Steve died. Henry had also married Eleanor of Aquitaine just a few years prior. And her story is very cool. She had been Queen of France. She had led the Second Crusade. She was one of the most wealthy and powerful women in Europe during the Middle Ages. Also, she and Henry were third cousins. What can you do? There's always (laughs) something. They had eight children, five sons and three daughters. Henry was a very active ruler. You could say ruthless. That would apply. In this case, 
His reign was all about reestablishing control over territories and offices which had fallen out of his father's grasp. So he restored the royal administration in England. He reclaimed control of Wales and some French lands. And then he set his sights on reforming the relationship between the English crown and the Catholic church. Henry's relationship with the church varied considerably over time and in different places. He didn't really have a common policy on dealing with the church and all his different territories. His main goal was just to resist papal influence as much as possible and to increase his own local authority. We've seen this before. (laughs) I wonder where. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, the clergy have been enjoying their gradual increase in power and and privilege. They've had greater autonomy from the royals, more power to increase papal influence. So at some point, there was bound to be a clash. But we're not there yet, because Henry II is generally getting along with the clergy. In fact, he and Thomas Becket become good friends. King Henry even sends his own son, who is also named Henry. Um, They call him Young Henry. It's annoying, because every Henry was young (laughs) at some point. Mm -hmm. But this one is the youngest Henry of the Henrys. (laughs) Well, I told you in my family how whenever people have the same name, they're just, like, big and little. So um, it's very, I'm sure, very strange whenever little gets to be big. Little gets bigger than big. (laughs) Yeah, we have three rays in my family. Big Ray, Middle Ray, and Little Ray. (laughs) Um, So, but this is young Henry. So Henry II even sends young Henry to live in Thomas's house. I guess that was like a custom at the time to foster out the royal children to other like noble houses i don't yeah, know why. i do not understand that practice i've run into it a lot that they're just like oh yeah they stayed in these various courts for mm-hmm. like their childhood it's like why would you just give your kid away to other people i feel like they're important yeah he was the heir to the throne they just passed him around <laughs> like a hot potato yeah maybe he was super annoying <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder what would, uh, like, a kid with ADHD would look like back in those days. Yeah. Like, so little to stimulate them. Yes. They would call them, like, oh, spirited and, like, some insult. Mm-hmm. Something like his his mind was not, could not focus on any study. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he, so yeah, maybe young Henry had ADHD. (laughs) That's my theory. They just loaned him out. (laughs) They passed him around. Whenever somebody got sick of him, he went to his other cousin's house. Anyway, Henry and Thomas become such good friends that when Archbishop Theobald dies in 1161, Henry immediately appoints Thomas as the new Archbishop of Canterbury. He has a couple reasons for doing this that are part of his strategy to weaken the influence of the church. Number one, he reasons that Thomas is his old friend and he'll do whatever Henry says. And number two, he believes that because Thomas is the chancellor, 
he will be politically weakened within the church because he holds a secular office. So like, he's not a priest yet. Like, and the other clergy won't respect him enough because of that to Mm -hmm. like follow all his orders perfectly. So Queen Eleanor and Henry's mother, Matilda, both tried to dissuade him from appointing Thomas to archbishop, but he is like, no, this is the greatest idea I've ever had. Me and Tommy are going to be like this BFF. Um, Thomas Beckett is formally elected on May 23rd, 1162. He was ordained a priest just a few weeks later on June 2nd. And the following day, he was consecrated archbishop. So that was a busy couple weeks, I would say. (laughs) Um, And he immediately resigned his chancellorship, um, which was kind of a shock. He had been a great chancellor. He was popular among pretty much everybody, from the royals to the soldiers to even the clergy. He didn't interfere at the local level, which I feel like is the key to success and making people like you. <laughs> like parish priests appreciated that he didn't try to like meddle with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to his secretary, Fitzstephen, he opened his home to all manner of people, regardless of their rank or their class. If anyone needed hospitality, they could come to Beckett's house. And the biographers write that because he was so well-liked as chancellor and because he was such good friends with the king, he could have had control. He could have had control over every single church in the country. He could have had like a seat of honor wherever he went. So... Why did he give it up when he became archbishop? Well, the answer is, according to the biographers, very simple. He found Jesus. Um, He did not take this appointment lightly. He didn't want to use his position as archbishop to gain power. It seems like the appointment itself, like his ordination as a priest, his consecration, all had a pretty profound effect on him personally. I really liked this excerpt from Fitzstephen's biography about the day of his consecration. He says, quote, the bishops went out to meet him with the monks and the clergy and an immense multitude of the common people, receiving him with every kind of honor and with acclamations of joy. But Thomas paid no attention to all these tokens of the public satisfaction. He advanced on foot with humility and contrition of heart and with his eyes filled with tears thinking less of the honor than of the burden which which he was about to take upon him. The burden meaning his new responsibility to uphold church sovereignty and the effect that that might have on his relationship with the king, his friend. And he took this responsibility very seriously. He became super devout, at least outwardly, like that we know of, um, he became an ascetic. He wore a hair shirt. No. I'm sorry. He did. <laughs> um, they didn't discover it until after his death. But just so you know, he's wearing one. <laughs> Michael, he always looked really uncomfortable in all of our meetings. This explains it. <laughs> he always had this like really pained grimace. <laughs> just like looked like he was constipated all the time. Um. Another of Beckett's clerks named Herbert de Bosham writes in his biography that with his appointment to archbishop, Thomas became a quote unquote new man. 
However, not all public opinion was positive. Um, probably the most common criticism in the early days of Beckett's archbishopric was the the one you would expect. Like, oh, he's just the king's friend. And how are you going to not even be ordained a priest until like a week before you become archbishop? I think the analogy in the book was like, how are you going to take the helm of a ship without ever having even touched an oar before? Like, what are you thinking? And Thomas is like, look, I looked for Jesus for a really long time. He was really elusive. <laughs> <laughs> look, Jesus did not want to be found until I was elevated to the highest position in the entire country. <laughs> and magically. Magically. On the shoulder. There he was. Um, so Thomas is definitely aware that he's under even more than the usual scrutiny and that if there are any scandals that arise or if anything he's doing looks like he's taking advantage or he's indulging in the luxury of his office, it's going to look really, really bad. and People aren't going to like him anymore. So while I can believe that he had a genuine desire to serve God in his new position, like that's not crazy to me to believe. I do also think he was just really smart and that he was strategic in the way that he presented himself. Like he knew what kind of persona he wanted to have. I think that both can be true, that mm -hmm. he wanted to do away with a lot of the luxuries um, in order to both serve God and avoid scandal. And he straight up tells King Henry, like, look, I can't serve both you and God. I can only pick one and I choose God. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. Jesus said I can't be friends with you anymore. I have to return <laughs> my friendship bracelet. Oh, no. <laughs> the little half of the heart. Oh, it says best. And Henry has the one that says friends. And he just cries with his every night. Oh, that's sad. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the two of them quickly start to disagree on a lot of things. The honeymoon is over. Beckett argues with Henry about his taxation policies. He tries to take back under church control some of the lands that Henry has acquired. But their biggest issue that they cannot agree on is the treatment of clergy who commit secular crimes. It's one of those spheres of influence thing that England always has a big problem with and why so many people get executed. They both want control over those kinds of trials. Um, the thing is that the church courts were limited in terms of what punishments they allowed. I feel like we've talked about this before. Um, in particular, they couldn't execute anybody. So that would give clergy exemption from severe punishment even if they committed murder or treason. What I, what I meant when I said they couldn't execute anybody is that they, they would never execute a member of the clergy in a church court. And this includes like deacons and clerks and stuff too. So that ends up being like one fifth of the male population in England that Henry doesn't have complete control over and he is not enjoying that. So basically what ends up happening is that Henry forces the approval of a set of laws called the Constitutions of Clarendon. And in these laws, he states that once a church court has tried and defrocked a clergyman, then that clergyman can be tried by the secular court 
and is no longer under the protection of the church. I mean, it makes sense, um, but the church doesn't like it, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, so Beckett is forced to approve these constitutions under like crazy pressure, like basically a threat of exile. And after he does approve them, he immediately takes it back. He's like, I should not have been pressured to agree to all that stuff. So I'm not going to do what the king tells me. I'm going to, for example, leave the country whenever I feel like it. It had been put in the constitutions that the archbishop wasn't allowed to leave without the king's permission. Um, he's also like, yeah, I'm going to ignore your court summons. Sorry, I can't come to court. I'm busy. That's like anytime I have a job and management starts <laughs> bearing down, it's like, mm, no, <laughs> um, I actually quit. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not coming. <laughs> oh, God, I love to quit jobs. Um, and he is like, I'm not going to give back the land that I've acquired from the king because, like, fuck you, I'm archbishop. And he flees to France under the protection of the French king. And this is when the feud between Thomas and Henry got super personal, like they're old friends, they're both super stubborn and ambitious people, and they're political, neither one is backing down, they both try to convince the Pope that they're right, <laughs> the Pope supports Thomas Beckett in theory, but needs Henry's help dealing with the Holy Roman Emperor, I forget who it is, maybe Frederick I, but I'm not sure, don't quote me. Um, I don't know why I bring that up. I didn't need to specify who it was, but now I probably got it wrong. Anyway, so the Pope tries to get them to negotiate, but he can't. They won't. And Henry starts harassing Beckett's friends in the clergy, and Beckett starts excommunicating Henry's friends. <laughs> um, finally, in 1169, Henry's like, I am so fucking over this. The feud with Thomas had become not only a personal sore spot with his broken friendship necklace that he cried over every night, but like a national embarrassment for him. He felt really insecure and upset, and he decided that he wanted to crown his son, young Henry, King of England, but he needed the Archbishop of Canterbury to perform the coronation. That was the tradition. That was just how it was done. So he tried once more to be nice to Thomas, but it didn't work. So he went ahead and got the Archbishop of York to do it instead, who was, if you remember, Thomas's old enemy. So that stung a little. And in response, Thomas places Henry under interdict. No mass for King Henry, no Eucharist, no ceremonies. It's like the warning stage before excommunication. <laughs> like the behavior light, like card chart when you're a kid. He's on yeah. yellow. Henry's on yellow. Yes. <laughs> Probation. Um, one more and I'm going to call your mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. So the two of them went back to negotiations because of this interdict. And with the help of some papal delegates, they finally come to terms in July of 1170, and Beckett returned to England. Yay! Friends making up. So cute. 
Um, except they actually don't. <laughs> Because it turns out Thomas secretly still feels some type of way about young Henry being crowned by the Archbishop of York, his old enemy. So in November of 1170, just a few months after they had come to that agreement, Beckett's like, um, hi, yeah, everybody who participated in this breach of my authority, which would be the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, and the Bishop of Salisbury, all you fuckers are excommunicated. Bye. When Henry hears about this, he reportedly utters the phrase, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Um, another common phraseology, like the oral tradition is, quote, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their Lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? When in actuality, he said, you have got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It's so like elaborate and like the rhetoric is so good when he was just like, come on. <laughs> you son of a whore. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Um, like he was probably just so frustrated that he didn't, know what else to say but um his soldiers who were there when he said it um they interpret it as a royal command <laughs> so four knights set out to go confront thomas beckett the king said is nobody gonna get rid of this guy so they're like hi i will i'll do it so four of them take off and go to Canterbury. This feels very <clears throat> January 6th in the United States to me. Oh, my God. You're so right. It's so scary. Um, which should tell you a lot about <laughs> Donald Trump <laughs> and yes. our our office of president in general. We, you know, we pretend it's so far away from like a monarch. It's fucking not. It's not at all. Um, so on December 29th, 1170, they arrive at Canterbury, right as Beckett and the other monks are saying vespers. The monks try to protect the church by barricading the doors to the cathedral, but Beckett reportedly says it is not right to make a fortress out of the house of prayer. So they leave the doors open and the knights rush in, swords drawn, shouting, where is Thomas Beckett, traitor to the king and country? And Thomas says, I am no traitor and I'm ready to die. The knights try to pull him out of the church. Um, they don't want to murder him in a church. It's not a great look. <laughs> but he holds on to a pillar of the altar and they can't <laughs> pull him off. I'm sorry, just imagining him clinging to it and like people grabbing him by the feet by trying the feet. to rip him off. It's very funny. <laughs> you can't kill me if I'm in here. <laughs> exactly. Um, what part of that's ready to die? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but they do anyway. They do kill him anyway. Um, so this is according to one of the monks who was injured in the assassination but survived he says 
quote, the impious knight suddenly set upon him and shaved off the summit of his crown, which the sacred chrism consecrated to God. Then with another blow received on the head, he remained firm. But with the third, the stricken martyr bent his knees and elbows, offering himself as a living sacrifice, saying in a low voice, for the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. But the third knight inflicted a grave wound on the fallen one. With this blow, his crown, which was large, separated from his head so that the blood turned white from the brain, yet no less did the brain turn red from the blood. It purpled the appearance of the church. The fifth, not a knight, but a cleric who had entered with the knights, placed his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and, it is horrible to say, scattered the brains with the blood across the floor, exclaiming to the rest, we can leave this place nights. He will not get up again. So again, I think that 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 cleric who betrayed him is like, I wonder if that's true. And I don't think it would be crazy because he did make a lot of enemies through all his like political maneuvering and stuff and like he was appointed to the highest position like so quickly so I bet a lot of people felt kind of some way about him so after Beckett's assassination the monks prepare his body for burial and it's at this time that they discover the hair shirt um people in England immediately started venerating Beckett as a martyr and he was canonized just two years after he died In the following years, the English revolted against Henry II, um, and in order to improve public opinion of himself, he he ordered, he honored Beckett's tomb in a display of public penance for the assassination. Henry did not arrest the assassins or take their land. They were excommunicated, and they actually all traveled to Rome to seek forgiveness from the Pope who ordered them to serve as knights in the Holy Land for 14 years. Um, This inspired the founding of the Knights of St. Thomas, which was the only military order native to England, until it was dissolved by Henry VIII during the Reformation. The monks were afraid that Becket's body might be stolen, so they placed his remains beneath the floor of the cathedral crypt, and they put a stone cover over them. In 1220, Beckett's bones were moved to a new gold-plated shrine. Canterbury had always been a very popular pilgrimage destination, and after Beckett's death, that increased like exponentially. It's where the pilgrims are traveling to in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. They're going to see the tomb of Thomas a Beckett. It became one of the most popular pilgrimage sites throughout the entire Middle Ages because his cult was so widespread. He represented like the ultimate moral triumph of the church over the secular world in an era where that power dynamic was constantly being questioned. And his assassination became the perfect example of like the greed of the royalty in trying to like take the power from the church. So obviously it would be in the church's best interest to promote Thomas Beckett's cult, which they did a lot. Um, During the Reformation, Henry VIII had Beckett's relics and shrine destroyed and ordered that all mention of his name be obliterated. Um, Obviously, that was unsuccessful because we're talking about him right now. But it is the reason that we've lost a lot of those original biographies. 
And then I thought I would end with a modern day update to this story that I find so fascinating and that I probably think about like once a week. I got this information from a BBC article published in March of 2020, and I made a TikTok about it. Um, Scientists in the Swiss-Italian Alps recently unearthed a 72-meter-long glacial core to study. Glaciers are like tree rings in how they document their history. They keep a record of the chemical composition of the air trapped in their, like, bubbles of ice. So when scientists analyzed this piece of 800-year-old ice, they found a huge surge of lead dust in the air which they were able to trace back to the 12th century. Using atmospheric modeling, which I do not pretend to understand (laughs) anything about what that means, um, they hypothesized that this lead dust-filled air had been carried on the wind from England, where lead mining was a booming industry in the late 1100s, and they matched the chemical composition of the glacier to tax records from the 12th century. So what does this have to do with Thomas Beckett? I'm so glad you asked. Um, The year 1169 was when King Henry II tried to get his son crowned king, and Thomas Beckett said absolutely not and placed Henry under interdict. The church did no business with the king for an entire year during that time. No churches were built, no additions to the royal palace, no repairs, nothing. And roofs at the time and other components of houses were made of lead. So the glaciers showed a steep drop in lead in the air composition from 1169 to 1170. And that is how alpine glaciers show evidence of a medieval English murder. And that is the story of St. Thomas Becket. So it's different from other stories because, you know, there's no visions and like showdown of God or anything. It really is just this guy who found his way to God eventually, maybe, and mostly just got into this excommunication pissing contest with the (laughs) king. (laughs) Exactly. Which is, I really like that. Like And the Englanders were like, this is our saint. This is our boy. (laughs) We love him. Uh, He's a mess. (laughs) He's a mess. Look at him. He's beautiful. Uh, He's a glorious mess. He's a beautiful disaster. (laughs) (laughs) It's like what girls with a drug problem have in their Instagram bio. That's him. (laughs) Beautiful disaster. (laughs) I bet there were like visions and stuff described in the original like hagiographies that maybe I just didn't because I did not read the entire biography like the whole synthesis because I did not have time and it was like 500 pages um so I bet there are more things than what I said but honestly I don't know if I believe them number one and number two I did not have time to get into all of them (laughs) Either way, it doesn't seem like it pervaded his life enough that you could tell his story without that stuff and it didn't change his story. Right. You can't really do that about other saints. Right. Like some saints, they wouldn't have a story without 
No, if you took all that stuff out, it's just like, well, they had a mom and a dad and then they they died. (laughs) They had a mom and dad. They fed some soup to sick people. They gave up all their shit. (laughs) Yeah, they wore a hair shirt. They whipped themselves and then they died at the age of 24. (laughs) Or 33. Or 30. Magically. Yeah, 24 or 33. That's it. Yep. So now he's interesting for that reason, that there's just so much of him outside of religion. For being a saint to have that much of your like existence and your life story be outside of religion is still interesting. Yeah, it's kind of rare. It reminds mm-hmm. me of the Viking guy. I forget his name. I'm the worst at this. Everything blurs together in this show. Yeah, uh, and that was forever ago. And it's really bad because so many things connect. And that's one of the reasons that everything blends. Mm -hmm. When I remember a detail like a ruler who did something in one of your stories and then I'm learning about them, I get really excited because I it's hard for me to connect different (laughs) different things like that. Mm hmm. But we do have a little bit of connection today. You will see that I am uh, a couple centuries later in time, but I am still with the Henrys, the royal Mm. family. So we're just a couple generations down the line. Cool. I'm excited. Okie dokie. Artichokey. (laughs) um so like always when you hit me with a super fucking early date uh in history Mm. i google first witch trial in whatever country you have given me Mm -hmm. um because there are so few accused witches prior to like the 1500s um so i usually know that that's where i'm gonna be stuck so i try to get as early as i can Mm -hmm. um if you google that for england you will get the first executed witch in england uh agnes waterhouse who i have not talked about and am not talking about today Mm. um i plugged in more keywords that you gave me because uh sarah gave me several keywords um she was really nice (laughs) that way uh And I ended up with an executed witch from 1441, who for some reason, unbeknownst to me, uh, is not the first executed witch. Um, It Hmm. takes place like uh, 100 years before Agnes Waterhouse. Um, And even while researching that witch, I ran into another trial without an execution from 1419. So, Hmm. wow. uh, Yeah, I kind of fell down into a rabbit hole and discovered things I didn't know existed. The trial I'm talking about today, uh, though you weren't going to find any documentaries on it or podcast episodes, I seriously, I looked for them. I couldn't find them Mm -hmm. because I always try to incorporate them into my research. No such resources. Well, this is going to be the first one. That's so exciting. Yeah, I was going in here blind. Um, Despite that, it's by no means an obscure trial. Its trial records don't exist, but I do believe its indictment records do. And I think those are two distinct things. There's a fly on my screen. (laughs) Sorry. 
Um, it involves the royal family surrounding King Henry VI. And this trial was a popular subject in poetry from the 1500s. And even Shakespeare wrote about it in Henry VI Part Two. So if you know any Shakespeare, you will probably recognize Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, Marjorie Jordamain, the Witch of I next Westminster, and the small group of necromancers that were charged alongside them, all of them standing accused of trying to assassinate Henry the Sixth with witchcraft in 1441. Whoa, that's intense. It's very intense. That's why I'm surprised there aren't more like documentaries and things on it. Yeah, I've never heard of any of these people. I was surprised that I hadn't heard of, like, I took an entire class on Shakespeare and to not run into, like, a witch trial that, like, these are principal characters in that play. Yeah, I didn't read any of the Henrys or the Richards. <laughs> no, I didn't read any of the history plays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm honestly really surprised that um, this isn't more popular because of the fact that it has been like popularized like that Mm -hmm. anywho eleanor uh before she is the duchess of gloucester is the daughter of sir reginald cobham a knight uh, and she is a lady in waiting to the current duchess of gloucester jacqueline of i think it's haynot but i have no idea she is the wife of humphrey duke of gloucester okay Humphrey is and isn't a principal player in the drama that's going to unfold. Uh, He isn't part of the witchcraft trial. He is not accused. He is not an accuser. He's not particularly an onstage actor for the most part. But his political career combined with what he does next does build the foundations for Eleanor's trial. So he is relevant. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we get to him... Let's get to Jacqueline, Jackie, his wife. She had fled from an abusive husband, Mm. received an annulment from the anti-pope for her marriage, and then married Humphrey kind of in secret. Um, And I even read something where she gets pregnant, like, almost immediately after that. She ends up having a miscarriage. But it's, like, this big scandal where she literally, like, flees from an abusive husband, Mm -hmm. gets this tenuous kind of annulment, and then marries in secret to this dude and then is knocked up. Um, Right. So she, like legally is married to two people and is also having one of their babies yeah love Um, that love that for her (laughs) she's also just i didn't write down a lot of her history but she's extremely interesting just as a person she i think humphrey is her third husband um and she's been like in and out of like royal families um And she's in this precarious situation the entire time where she has the titles to, like, three different lands, but Mm -hmm. only one of them recognizes, like, female heirs. Mm. So she's only legitimate in, like, one of these places, and those other two are trying to be, like, snatched up by her male relatives. Yep. Um, So she's also dealing with that and her husband is like signing off shit on her behalf um, to like her uncle's 
without her permission. So it's just a whole big clusterfuck that she's trying to get away from. She's got a lot going on, Jackie does. She does. Um, Anyway, later on, many years later, a different pope steps in. It's like, I don't really recognize that annulment that happened. Um, Mm -hmm. Just feel like putting that out there. Um, Mm -hmm. So... I don't recognize your marriage to Humphrey like at all. Mm. Um, And Jackie and Humphrey are like, okay, but Jackie's husband died like a year ago. So. Right. Like, it's not like she's still married to the guy. Like he crew. So they have the opportunity to get married, like legitimately for real. But Humphrey at this point fancies the lady in waiting, Eleanor, um, our main character today and Jackie like I said has all that personal stuff going on with the male family members trying to hijack her titles Mm. um so he and Jackie don't end up remarrying they're just in different places now in their lives different journeys yeah like they they were soulmates at one point now it's just life changes yeah it does Mm mm-hmm so Humphrey, he trades in for a different gal, Eleanor. <laughs> different um, model. <laughs> that's what I wrote. I didn't say it, but that's what I wrote. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, this is also to a lot of scandal. One, because like the whole marriage situation with Jackie's really kind of fucked up. And then to like turn around and like get with her lady in waiting is really weird. Um, yeah, but also, uh, Jackie, the way I understood it was pretty well liked in England and end up being like a godmother to one of the King's children, um, at Whoa. some point. So, uh, she, she was liked and for mm-hmm. her to like disappear into, to nowhere and Humphrey to take up with her lady in waiting, people were not necessarily happy about that. Okay. Humphrey did have two children out of wedlock. I didn't write their names down because I didn't care, but I remember that one of them is named Antigone because who the fuck names their kid Antigone? Love that. I do too. (laughs) That's very cool. It's not a Mary. It's not an Elizabeth. No. You know? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Antigone's from The Winter's Tale, right, Shakespeare? Yeah, but it's also... It's also the a Greek yeah. play, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've tr- I was trying to remember if that was the name of the character in that Shakespeare play that I was thinking of. Her name was Antigone. I actually don't know. I haven't read it, <laughs> but I read the Greek play <laughs> where, with our combined knowledge, <laughs> we can do the bare minimum <laughs> half-heartedly. <laughs> Anyway, I do anyway. like the name Antigone. So Me too. good on him. Uh, they are illegitimate children. We don't know the names of the mistresses who had the children, but there is speculation that the children are Eleanor's before she married Humphrey. So like she was getting knocked up by him before they were together it is argued however that this is unlikely because humphrey never does end up legitimizing these children which he would probably do if he ends up marrying their mother because 
uh, someone in his family had had done that. I don't know if it was his father or somebody in his family had done that. And I've read other people doing it that like they marry their mistress and then they legitimize the kid. Right. Otherwise, it would look bad on them. Yeah, he does not do that with these two kids. Hmm. So they are probably not Eleanor's. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take this moment to dive into who Humphrey is quickly. What's going on in his career? So Humphrey is the youngest son. I I did not verify that at all, so I hope it's correct. <laughs> He's the youngest son, we'll say, of Henry the Fourth, brother to Henry the Fifth, and is uncle to the currently reigning Henry the Sixth. Don't okay. shoot me if any of that is incorrect. I'm pretty sure it's right, but I did write this at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because Humphrey is the last brother alive, and there is a distinct lack of kids being like had in the family by his brothers um humphrey is now the presumptive heir if his nephew kicks the bucket oh interesting this is muy importante Mm -hmm. remember this (laughs) see Humphrey is also not really that well liked by the other people in the king's council. His nephew does love him and does trust him, probably because like he was his lord protector, like in charge of him for a while, and they're close. Um, but as we get closer to fourteen forty one, Humphrey makes a lot of really boneheaded decisions regarding France and what's going on over there. I did not read a ton about what's going on in France. I didn't care. Something about him refusing to back down and losing ground and there's some sort of ally involved. I don't know that he's fucking over. Sure. Just some stupid ass decisions that people did not agree with. Okay. Uh, Because of this, he starts to lose the favor of his nephew, and he does stop putting in appearances at the council meetings. Like, he is rarely attending by the time we get to, like, 1440, 1441. Okay. In the meantime, Eleanor is just living it the fuck up. Good for her. At any moment, she could be Queen of England. Medieval healthcare is fucking garbage. Like, who knows what could happen to to Henry VI. Someone could cough on him and kill mm. him. He could fall down some stairs on accident, and then it's bye-bye. Sure. When I, when I was reading about Jackie, I, I don't know if it was her father or somebody related to her got bit by a dog and died. Like, Ew. what a way to fucking go, is get bit by a dog and you fucking croak. Yeah, that sucks. And it's not like it was an infection, too. So it's not like he was mauled. Mm, That's disgusting. But (laughs) it's so funny how, like, a simple dog bite and then, like, (laughs) Ignatius of Loyola just gets his leg destroyed, (laughs) smashed back together, and he's totally fine. And you get some people who was it like fucking Edward Kelly fell off of the castle wall and broke his leg. And then he's like croaked. <laughs> right. But then Joan of Arc does it. Yes. And she doesn't even like twist her ankle. But I feel like <laughs> sometimes the same shit happens in the modern day too. That mm. like somebody will fall off like a six story building and walk away like perfectly fine. And another person will like eat a grape and die. <laughs> It is true. 
Ah, humans. We make Uh, no sense. Truly. Um, Anywho, so at any moment she could be queen, but she's also just enjoying being a duchess. Mm. A source I read says that she decks herself in jewels and rides around town high and mighty and full of herself. Though, to my understanding, some of this could be exaggerated because writers at this time were not fond of her. Um, In fact, early versions of her story... In these early versions, her husband's politics have, like, nothing to do with her downfall. It's all about her arrogance, her bad reputation, her. Um, So that just goes to show you, like, how much people fucking hated her. Yeah, she's being obnoxious, and they they don't like that. Yeah, uh, she's having the time of her life. And historically, we do not like it when women have the times of their lives. No, it means that their lives will soon come to an end. <laughs> yeah, God, they, they, if they enjoy themselves, they'll get thoughts and ideas and feelings. And then the next thing you know, they pull a St. Olga and all the birds in your city are on fire and your it's men are true. buried alive. Yeah, that's Slippery a Slippery slope. It's, it's very true. Yeah. Dangerous. Mm -hmm. that's where everything is headed every woman having opinions is headed to (laughs) your birds are going to be on fire your birds will turn on you and light your (laughs) house on fire something else eleanor is getting up to in the meantime is uh she's getting interested in the occult Uh um bad combination of things really poor decisions on eleanor's part like pick a different hobby any other hobby anything else take up knitting anything what else was there (laughs) i don't know throwing rocks (laughs) go down to the river and try and skip some rocks across just not this baby just Mm -hmm. not this yeah and her getting interested in the occult is not really a secret at all people know Mm. about it one woman she is a client of is Marjorie Jerdemain or Jerdain in some accounts. If I butchered that, fuck you. It wasn't online anywhere, so. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Marjorie is known as the Witch of Eye next was Witch of Eye. The Witch of Eye next Westminster. Like is a fucking tongue tie. So it's like Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, next is like near. So okay. which of I near Westminster? But saying next and Westminster next to each other is a mouthful. Nextminster. <laughs> um, or she's also just simply the witch of I, and that's E Y E, like eyeball. Oh, that's I. cool. And I was, yeah, I was like, that's cool. But like, why the fuck I? I'm like, how the fuck do you get the nickname the witch of I? Hmm. Um, turns out it's because it comes from Ebery, Ebery, Ibery. Um, if you draw it out, steal the first like syllable off of it, that's where you get I from. Okay. And that's a place. So it's, it's still a badass name. It's, it has nothing to do with eyeballs, but hmm. damn, I can dream. Yeah. We don't know a lot about Marjorie or the family that she comes from. The Jordamains, her husband's family, are kind of wealthy. They are these, like, well-established, like, yeomans. Um, Her husband, William, I read in some accounts that we have no info on, and in others I read that he was an official of Westminster Abbey's Ebery Estate. 
every okay. That's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take a leap and say that maybe these latter accounts are suppositions based on the info that we do have. Like maybe we guess that he works there because that's her title. Like that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is 100% me talking out of my ass. Um, I was working with academic articles for the most part that do that thing where they just state stuff instead of like quoting their reference material. Mm. Uh, yeah. Much like much like I do every time I tell a story here, like I'm doing currently, it's all paraphrased, buddy, not a quote to be found. So I have no room to talk. Uh, <laughs> I also read some of those 16th century poems and some of the Shakespeare and they aren't quoting anything or citing their sources. So I don't know. Maybe the info on her husband is accurate. And when other historians are saying, we know nothing about her family, they mean like where their house was or if they have kids, like words are tricky and they mean so many things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Without the source (laughs) material, I have no way to verify what the fuck that means. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie. Marjorie was arrested in 1432 for a witchcraft-related reason, which we only know because part of her sentence was don't get up to that witchcraft tomfoolery anymore. Um, Beyond that, we have absolutely no idea what that had to do with. And then outside of this info and what surfaces during the 1441 trial, there's not really anything that we know about this lady. Like, mm-hmm. we maybe know some of her clients. We know that she associated with, like, the royal court and uh, all these uh, people people from the, um, like, upper middle class, upper class. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does get some cool descriptions. There is this book of poems from the 1500s called The Mirror for Magistrates, mm. um, which I read a tiny tiny bit of tiny bit um and it has a stanza on marjorie inside eleanor's poem which i will read and forgive me if i butcher the shit out of it because this is the same reason i only read so much of it it's in that weird middle english kind of garbage where (laughs) it looks like everybody just wrote words like they sounded they did (laughs) yeah they all have like extra letters and all of the there's so many whys for no reason (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know it well yeah so the stanza says there was a beldam called the witch of eye old mother madge her neighbors did her name which wrought wonders in countries by hearsay both fiends and fairies her charmings would obey and dead corpses from grace she could uprear such a ch- enchantress as that time had no peer mm. so many extra letters <laughs> so she's bringing dead people back to life she is making potions and concoctions and she's apparently known for all the stuff related to the dead and fairies and things like that. This is really the only information that we have about mm. her is these small snippets. Mm. Um, but I mean, she's interesting enough to have made this trial and to have lasted through history and to show up in Shakespeare's play. So mm-hmm. Like, good on her. Yeah. Just, you do you, lady. (laughs) 
Yeah. Quick note that you do see Beldum and Witch being tied together in that first line, um, like we talked about in the Baba Yaga episode, how mm. you get conflation of definition from people doing stuff like this. So if they say there was a Beldum called the Witch of Eye, then eventually you're going to start thinking of Beldum and Witch being very close, if not the same thing. And then thinking that, like, witch equals, like, old lady hag. Yeah. So you just fall down and down and down the hole on accident. Mm -hmm. Back to Eleanor. So she's a client of Marjorie's. I will say why later. It's a surprise. Not for any particular reason. It just didn't fit into the flow of my story correctly to tell you right now. Okay. Um, Eleanor also associates with Roger Bolingbroke, an Oxford priest who doubles as her personal clerk. Mm. Thomas Southwell, canon of St. Stephen's or St. Stephen's, I don't know, chapel in the Palace of Westminster, rector of St. Stephen's, Stephen's, whatever the fuck, Walbrook, London, and vicar of Ricelip, Middlesex. Like, he could not have enough, like, fucking titles. Yeah, he was doing the most. He was. Um, and then finally, you have John Holm, canon of Hereford and St. Asaph and Eleanor's chaplain. So we've got okay. these, these three dudes who are all tied to like the clergy. Mm-hmm. The story goes that these men with Eleanor meet several times after 1440 and use magical figures, vestments, and instruments to invoke demons and evil spirits, all to figure out when Henry VI is going to kick the bucket. Mm. It's said that they make a figure of the king, like this wax figure, and with it calculate that he is going to die of melancholia at the end of May or early in June 1441. And Eleanor is the one who has provoked these men to do this. Okay. Their forecast of the king's death gets spread around the city, which is not great. No. We sort of saw this situation with John D. many episodes ago. He wrote up some horoscopes and got accused of trying to assassinate Queen Mary as a uh, result. Yeah. Yeah, because occults, scary, bad. Yeah. And Queen Mary was a psychotic bitch, so... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Pick somebody else to write a horoscope about. Right. Um, obviously, this Mary band of men's work is a little more sus than just a horoscope, you know, the whole like vestments and wax figure and everything being involved. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still a far cry from like an outright assassination attempt or treason. But this is not how the royal house sees it, because you don't talk about when the king is going to die unless you want the king to die. Well, yeah, and it would just be rather weird. Like, imagine you had a son and people were, like, secretly gathering in their basement and they made a little figurine of your son. And they're like, when will you die? (laughs) Like, you would probably want that to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Perhaps. Like, no matter what, you would probably be like, hey, can you guys maybe cut it out? It's a little weird. It's it's weird. There's no like good explanation for doing that. <laughs> a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, first order of business after this news kind of breaks is that King Henry finds his own astrologers to draw him up a horoscope a horoscope to 
um, <laughs> to contest this. Um, and these astrologers are like, you know, our chart says that you are going to live a long, long, long time. And I am not just saying this because you will fucking murder me if I say something else. Definitely right. not. <laughs> Definitely not going to die in Gemini season. Definitely not. <laughs> to me, it's like if the king asked for a tarot reading and you drew the tower and he's like, oh, what does that card mean? And you're like, God, actually, this card is super positive. <laughs> you see, actually, I flipped it the wrong way. It's the tower reversed. Mm-hmm. So this is actually really good. It's that a means good card. balance, peace and harmony. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is really great for you. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of July, Eleanor's, and this is in 1441. At the end of July, Eleanor's associates are arrested and she is brought in for examination on July 24th on 28 charges of felony and treason. Damn, 28. It's <laughs> <That's> a lot. <laughs> Um, I read that Dowager Queen Joan was tried and exonerated of witchcraft in 1419. So plenty of people have been alive for that trial and now this trial. Um, And it's Mm. probably coloring their opinions of what's going on, especially because Eleanor's husband Humphrey had been friendly with Queen Joan. Um, Mm. I think I read that whenever she was imprisoned, like he went to go visit her. So, so people are like, oh, these people. Yeah, it doesn't look great. Mm-hmm. Um, and think again, Humphrey's not Humphrey is not entirely blameless here. If the king dies, he gets to be king. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, also a brief note that I think the reason that Marjorie ends up arrested alongside Eleanor and these men, because I know I said that it was the men who were having these meetings and then Eleanor was just a client of Marjorie's, mm-hmm. um, is that Eleanor during all of this says that the wax figure they used during their rituals was made by Marjorie. Oh. So that's how she gets pulled into everything. I see. Because mm-hmm. I was very confused whenever I first started reading them. Like, what the fuck does she have to do with anything? She just is a witch in their vicinity and they're like, treason. <laughs> and she's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> So she made the wax figure, allegedly. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a series of dates where people appear before juries at places and recant and testify and are imprisoned and go elsewhere. And I don't feel like getting into it. So if you want to know the finer details of what happens to whom on what day, there are free out- articles out there with that info. Uh, you can go read the blow by blow if you mm-hmm. want. Okay. I didn't really want to get into it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is the gist of everything. Eleanor, Marjorie, and the boys end up arrested and charged with sorcery, treason, and necromancy. Mm. Eleanor admits admits to five of the 28 charges against her, but only the magical ones, not the treason. Um, very, very specifically because the treason is going to mean that she gets executed. So, right. 
She's like, absolutely, I did witchy shit, 100%. Um, but I do not want the king dead. Right. That's a lie. Yeah. Um, and their trials drag out for months. Another reason I don't want to get into the play-by-play is these months of shit happening. Mm-hmm. I said I'd get into why Eleanor is a client of Marjorie's. I wanted to wait because the two of them can test the reason during the trial. So it makes sense to bring it up here. Mm -hmm. Um, Marjorie says that Eleanor has been her client for a long time, hiring her to concoct medicines and potions to induce Duke Humphrey to love and marry her. I.e. she just really wanted to help Eleanor slut it up just just whore it out there get her man so (laughs) whore it out there just get some stank on it (laughs) that's a direct quote from this 15th century trial absolutely that comes straight from the trial transcript (laughs) middle english and all yeah stank with an e on the end Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, my God. What if that's the title? (laughs) Make it the title. Got it. Done. Um, Anywho, Eleanor says no, um, that the reason she went to Marjorie was that she was trying to have a child with the Duke. Um, because remember that even if the Duke's two kids out of wedlock do happen to be Eleanor's, they are illegitimate. Their marriage has no legitimate children. Mm-hmm. She says that all any of this was, um, it wasn't predicting the King's death. It wasn't wanting him dead. It was just trying to help, uh, trying to get her friends to use magic to help her have a baby. So like the wax figure wasn't like the King that they, they, they like put it in the fire and all kinds of shit. She's like, that's, that's not what it was about. Like we weren't predicting the King's death. Like this was all a big magical spell to help me have a baby. So that I can, like, secure myself in this family and secure, like, my son maybe taking over as king, blah, blah, blah. Secure the bag. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Not a single goddamn person believes this. Yeah. (laughs) Which it could very well have been true. I read several historians things that it's like people didn't like her so much and didn't like her husband so much and just wanted like him out of the king's council and just rid of them both that they could have found out that she was interested in magic. She was trying to have this baby and then they threw in some extra details and they're the one who spun the story into her trying to kill the king. Yeah. Um, So it could go either way. Yeah, I could see either way. Mm -hmm. And they said that it really comes down to like what time period you're reading accounts from because contemporary accounts hate Eleanor. So they're going to paint her in the bad light and as this person who is trying to make herself queen Mm. um, by, by getting rid of the king. If you get further into the 1500s and a little bit away from that, you're going to see historians start, uh, making these um i don't know what the word i'm looking for here is oh allowances they're they're essentially going to to say that it had a political angle that you don't see 
um, in the decades before that. So they're like, okay, if like Eleanor, whatever about her, but you need to step back and you need to look at the context of what's going on with like her husband and her family. And you can start to see that like, maybe it's not as straightforward as that. So um, the, the theory of what happened really just depends like where in history you are reading accounts from. Yeah. Because, you know, they could have just been too close to this at this point in time to have uh, a clear, clear view on what was going on. Yeah. Emotions are heightened. Mm, emotions. Men and their emotions. Mm-hmm. On October 27th, 1441, Marjorie is removed from the Tower of London and burned at Smithfield. She is executed explicitly. Mm-hmm. And I know that there has to be some sort of technicality or something happening here for Agnes Waterhouse to somehow still be the first executed witch. Yeah, maybe she was executed for treason. Yeah, I I don't know what it is. Like, she is an executed witch, but is she an executed witch for For witchcraft? witchcraft. (laughs) I don't know. Where are we drawing the line in the sand here? Yeah. so this is uh, something that just made me wonder, like, how many other technicality cases there might be out there to dig up. Mm-hmm. Because, um, I mean, I mentioned Queen Joan. She wasn't executed, but I have never seen her on a trial list before. Um, and her father's connection to sorcery even came up briefly while I was looking at her. Um, and this is one reason why witch trials can be like an absolute pain to find sometimes mm-hmm. if they aren't this huge trial or they aren't on some BuzzFeed top 10 listicle out there, mm-hmm. no one's really popularizing them and it takes falling into a rabbit hole and stumbling on them on accident to know that they exist. Right. I have bookmarked so many trials of the last year that I know I will never be able to find again without that bookmark in my phone. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Back to the rest of the accused. Uh, Southwell dies the day before Marjorie in the Tower of London, maybe of a fear-induced stroke or heart attack, or maybe he poisoned himself. We do not know. Mm. Next month on the 18th of November, which I was really excited reading through this because so many of the dates in this thing are like either the birthdays of my friends or like really close. Like this is the day before my birthday. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, like Hannah's birthday is in the trial records. Her son's birthday is in the records. And it's like, this is just really weird. So it's always cool when that happens. Mm-hmm. It feels and- like haunted. <laughs> Yeah, and the fact that it, like, all the arrests and stuff happen, like, right now. So it's at the very end of July taking mm-hmm. place into, like, the beginning of August, and then it goes on for many months after that. So mm-hmm. it's like, hmm, it's exactly right now, only a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, that is cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, next month on the 18th of November, Roger is taken, uh, Roger Bolingbroke is taken through the streets protesting his innocence to Tyburn, where authorities hang him, disembowel him, and quarter him. Oh, boy. And as if we as humans are not fucked up enough to do, like, just that to a person, they also FedEx his limbs off to other towns that have heresy problems and mount his head on London Bridge. Oh, good lord. 
they really just div- divvied him up and gave him away. Imagine being that messenger carrying like one of his legs. <laughs> Like Imagine miles. unwrapping it. It's like, oh, yay, for the town square. <laughs> oh, yes. This will look great on the mantle of the town square. <laughs> Cedric, get working on the plaque so they know why they shouldn't do this. Cedric. <laughs> the messenger's like, um, yeah, I got one leg for the, for the mayor. Can you sign for this? <laughs> Can anybody sign for this goddamn leg? It stinks really bad. <laughs> I'm sick of it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, John Holm. He apparently sucks the right person off because he receives a pardon <laughs> the same mm. day that Roger dies. Nice. <laughs> yes. Nice. The survivor's guilt on that one, I'm sure, is just top notch. Mm-hmm. Like, could you imagine? They're like, oh, I got a pardon. What happened to Roger? Oh, we kind of like divvied him up into a lot of pieces and gave him away. Oh, oh, oh. oh nothing happened. Nothing. We just went our separate ways. He went his own separate ways, <laughs> a lot of different ways. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe don't cross London Bridge for a while. Yep. Stay away. Yeah. <laughs> it would be so weird to see, like, your friend's head mounted on a bridge. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> no, but it's really, like, it feels like something of fiction whenever you try to imagine it. Like, oh, that would never happen. Like, that's something that happens in movies and books. It's like, mm. no, this would actually happen to people. Oh, yeah, they did that a lot. Yeah, so it's really weird to think of and to try and, like, remove that uh, veil of fiction out of your head and try to imagine, like, what it would actually be like. Yeah. Because my brain just can't connect to Mm -hmm. it. All of this brings us to Eleanor. On November 6th, they divorce Eleanor from the Duke of Gloucester. Mm -hmm. Um. One of the reasons I read is because if, in fact, her marriage was procured through magic, through Marjorie, then it was fake anyway. So, um, but it's also to kind of, like, remove him from the scandal a little bit. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, they decide Eleanor, quote, with a burning taper in her hand, is to proceed from Westminster to a London church on three market days when London's population will be swollen to its maximum by visiting tradesmen and shoppers. This she did on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the 13th, 15th, and 17th of November, end quote. So she's just on display for a bunch of people to, like, abuse her. Yeah, and they said that, I don't know the actual phrase, like, bareheaded or something. I think that, like, a head covering the, like, bonnets the woman wore, she had to take hers off. Mm, Humiliating. Yeah, so this is meant to be, like, a walk of penance, a walk of shame in, like, Mm -hmm. the vein of, like, Cersei Lannister, that they're literally just parading her around in front of people for days. Mm. Um, in the end Eleanor is not executed but she is imprisoned kind of like uh, Queen Joan was but not as lavishly Um, and she is never exonerated so Mm. they transfer her a couple of times due to gossip that people want her freed and are maybe going to make attempts to free her Mm. so they just keep passing her 
passing her around like a trading card. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly where she ends up and where she dies are both disputed. Some Mm -hmm. put her final prison at the Isle of Man and her death around 1454. And some say that she ends up in Flint Castle and dies around 1452. Um, Some say neither of those sites can be definitively proven um Hmm. so we know like the first couple of stops that she had like they're very well recorded but after that like people say that she went to these places but we have no way to like back up that she went there some people say that she died here at this date and other people say no no she went on to this castle after that and she actually died over here um and so we at some point we just don't have any like hard backing to what people are saying Mm -hmm. do we believe it because like 17 historians said that she went to this place even though we can't prove it but like why would 17 historians back in the day say that if it wasn't true yeah Um, so we we have no idea exactly where she ended up and where she died Hmm. There are legends that her ghost wanders around Peel Castle on the Isle of Man. That mm. You can hear her footsteps like descend down into the dungeons and walk mm-hmm. around the castle and things. Mm. Uh, among these same stories, you will find legends of a black dog called uh, the Mothadu. It's in a different language. I tried to find a pronunciation for it, but no one would say it. They would only spell out, like, the the phoneticization. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's a word. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Madhudu is how I would say it. In some stories, people like to surmise there's a chance that this black dog haunted Eleanor whenever she was in prison, so she ran into it. Um, and in other stories, Eleanor's ghost is actually the Mavadu, so the black dog. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the story of Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, Marjorie Jordamain, the Witch of Eye, and a couple of necromancer dudes I'm going to sweep under the rug in one nameless lump. <laughs> That's great, because who cares what men's names are? It's, I got to do my due diligence, okay? Mm-hmm. Gonna flip the script. Yeah, that's that's our job here. Um, That was really good. I loved the political drama that we both had going on. <laughs> There's a lot of political drama. Yeah. With those Henrys. The, the Henry, the drama of the Henrys... Never really ends in England, I feel like. No, it truly does not. Like, every time a new Henry came to the <laughs> throne, they're like, well, this wouldn't be okay. And, like, Henry VIII got up there and he said, absolutely not. <laughs> no, it makes me wonder. It's almost as if generations upon generations of incest <laughs> is a bad idea. <laughs> And also, one family ruling things for extended periods of time is also a bad idea. Yeah, probably let's not do that anymore. Yeah, because I mean, even down to a small scale, like I'm from a small town where we have like surnames that rule the area. And like, it's just, it's a bad situation anytime one family has a monopoly on anything. It's true. And I think that's true for a lot of small towns. Like even here, like 
I guess Galena is like maybe a little bit bigger, but not really. And like, it is like you can go to the oldest cemetery in town and find names of people who still have like family businesses here. They definitely run the area and yep. it makes room for so much like abuse of power and corruption. Mm-hmm. So there should not have been that many fucking Henry's. <laughs> <laughs> Enough Henry's. Um, that was good though. I liked Eleanor a lot. I think she was cool. She just wanted to have a good time. She was here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> not a long time. I do think it's interesting that she wasn't executed, though. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know if it's because she was so high profile or, mm. or like, if she was a, a, a woman. I don't know what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, they just, they just imprisoned her for a long time. They ended up killing her husband. I didn't write that down, but they did kill her husband at some point. Oh. We're imprisoned him and he died. People mm. say he was murdered, but he may not have been murdered. It's another one of those theory things. Also the theories. Also the guy who like might have had a fear-induced stroke. <laughs> Southwell, he's just like, um, oh no, oh no, man. <laughs> I would do that to myself though. Like if I knew that there was a possibility that I was going to be fucking disemboweled and quartered the next day, I would be like, all right, brain, implode. Mm-hmm. We can do this. <laughs> implode, implode. Yeah, <laughs> work myself into a fit. <laughs> yeah. No, I bet that's totally possible. I'm sure you could. Oh, that's scary. Now that's a new anxiety that I have. <laughs> Accidentally killing yourself with <laughs> stress-induced stroke. Yeah. I would be the one to do it. Yeah, I could see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I liked our similarities. Like it when we have similarities and things are connected. When you yeah. follow one story like down the line to the other. Yeah, from Henry the Second to Henry the Sixth, not that long of a time, Mm-mm, at all. And I mean, Humphrey, his dad was Henry the Fourth, mm-hmm. so even closer. He was the son of young Henry, hmm. I think. I don't know. Don't quote me. I mean, I figure Henry the Third. Yeah, I feel like yeah. they'd be called something different if they weren't of the same lineage. Mm-hmm. But yeah, extremely close. Yeah, good times. Thank you, England, for all your drama. For all your bullshit. All your Just bullshit. Letting us air it all over the place. <laughs> air out your dirty laundry. Get, <laughs> get some stank on it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know how to contact us, email us with, maybe there's some weird historical bullshit that you've always wanted to know about. Maybe it's your weird historical bullshit. Yeah. Look up your birthday and figure out which saint has that feast day and then ask us to talk about them. Cause we will. Yeah, we will. That's the scary part is we will do whatever you say. Within reason. Yeah. (laughs) 
if we feel like it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, that's all. And until next time, thanks be to God. Blessed be.